Chapter Twelve of the Blythedale Romance. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Blythedale Romance by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Chapter Twelve. Coverdale's Hermitage. Long since, in this part of our circumjacent wood, I had found out for myself a little hermitage. It was a kind of leafy cave, high upward into the air, among the midmost branches of a white pine tree. A wild grapevine of unusual size and luxuriance had twined and twisted itself up into the tree, and, after wreathing the entanglement of its tendrils around almost every bough, had caught hold of three or four neighboring trees, and married the whole clump with a perfectly inextricable knot of polygamy. Once, while sheltering myself from a summer shower, the fancy had taken me to clamber up into this seemingly impervious mass of foliage. The branches yielded me a passage and closed again beneath, as if only a squirrel or a bird had passed. Far aloft, around the stem of the central pine, behold a perfect nest for Robinson Crusoe or King Charles. A hollow chamber of rare seclusion had been formed by the decay of some of the pine branches, which the vine had lovingly strangled with its embrace, burying them from the light of day in an aerial sepulchre of its own leaves. It cost me but little ingenuity to enlarge the interior and open loopholes through the verdant walls. Had it ever been my fortune to spend a honeymoon, I should have thought seriously of inviting my bride up thither, where our next neighbors would have been two orioles in another part of the clump. It was an amiable place to make verses, tuning the rhythm to the breezy symphony that so often stirred among the vine-leaves, or to meditate an essay for the dial, in which the many tongues of nature whispered mysteries, and seemed to ask only a little stronger puff of wind to speak out the solution of its riddle. Being so pervious to air-currents, it was just the nook, too, for the enjoyment of a cigar. This hermitage was my one exclusive possession while I counted myself a brother of the socialists. It symbolized my individuality, and aided me in keeping it inviolate. None ever found me out in it except once a squirrel. I brought thither no guest, because, after Hollingsworth failed me, there was no longer the man alive with whom I could think of sharing it all. So there I used to sit, owl-like, yet not without liberal and hospitable thoughts. I counted the innumerable clusters of my vine, and foreckoned the abundance of my vintage. It gladdened me to anticipate the surprise of the community, when, like an allegorical figure of rich October, I should make my appearance with shoulders bent beneath the burden of ripe grapes, and some of the crushed ones crimsoning my brow as with a blood-stain. Ascending into this natural turret, I peeped in turn out of several of its small windows. The pine-tree, being ancient, rose high above the rest of the wood, which was of comparatively recent growth. Even where I sat about midway between the root and the topmost bough, my position was lofty enough to serve as an observatory, not for starry investigations, but for those sublunary matters in which lay a lore as infinite as that of the planets. Through one loophole I saw the river lapsing calmly onward, 
while in the meadow near its brink a few of the brethren were digging peat for our winter's fuel. On the interior cart-road of our farm I discerned Hollingsworth with a yoke of oxen hitched to a drag of stones that were to be piled into a fence, on which we employed ourselves at the odd intervals of other labor. The harsh tones of his voice, shouting to the sluggish steers, made me sensible, even at such a distance, that he was ill at ease, and that the balked philanthropist had the battle spirit in his heart. "'Ha, Buck!' quoth he. "'Come along there, ye lazy ones. What are ye about now? Gee!' Mankind, in Hollingsworth's opinion, thought I, is but another yoke of oxen, as stubborn, stupid, and sluggish as our old brown and bright. He vituperates us aloud, and curses us in his heart, and will begin to prick us with the goad-stick by and by. But are we his oxen? And what right has he to be the driver? And why, when there is enough else to do, should we waste our strength in dragging home the ponderous load of his philanthropic absurdities? At my height above the earth the whole matter looks ridiculous." Turning towards the farmhouse I saw Priscilla, for though a great way off the eye of faith assured me that it was she, sitting at Zenobia's window and making little purses, I suppose, or perhaps mending the community's old linen. A bird flew past my tree, and as it clove its way onward into the sunny atmosphere I flung it a message for Priscilla. Tell her, said I, that her fragile thread of life has inextricably knotted itself with other and tougher threads, and most likely it will be broken. Tell her that Zenobia will not long be her friend. Say that Hollingsworth's heart is on fire with his own purpose, but icy for all human affection, and that, if she has given him her love, it is like casting a flower into a sepulchre and say that if any mortal really cares for her it is myself, and not even I for her realities, poor little seamstress, as Zenobia rightly called her, but for the fancy-work with which I have idly decked her out. The pleasant scent of the wood, evolved by the hot sun, stole up to my nostrils as if I had been an idol in its niche. Many trees mingled their fragrance into a thousandfold odor, Possibly there was a sensual influence in the broad light of noon that lay beneath me. It may have been the cause, in part, that I suddenly found myself possessed by a mood of disbelief in moral beauty or heroism, and a conviction of the folly of attempting to benefit the world. Our especial scheme of reform, which from my observatory I could take in with the bodily eye, looked so ridiculous that it was impossible not to laugh aloud. But the joke is a little too heavy, thought I. If I were wise, I should get out of the scrape with all diligence, and then laugh at my companions for remaining in it. While thus musing, I heard with perfect distinctness, somewhere in the wood beneath, the peculiar laugh which I have described as one of the disagreeable characteristics of Professor Westervelt. It brought my thoughts back to our recent interview. I recognized as chiefly due to this man's influence the skeptical and sneering view which just now had filled my mental vision in regard to all life's better purposes, and it was through his eyes, more than my own, that I was looking at Hollingsworth, with his glorious if impracticable dream, 
and at the noble earthliness of Zenobia's character, and even at Priscilla, whose impalpable grace lay so singularly between disease and beauty. The essential charm of each had vanished. There are some spheres the contact with which inevitably degrades the high, debases the pure, deforms the beautiful. It must be a mind of uncommon strength and little impressibility that can permit itself the habit of such intercourse, and not be permanently deteriorated. And yet the professor's tone represented that of worldly society at large, where a cold skepticism smothers what it can of our spiritual aspirations, and makes the rest ridiculous. I detested this kind of man, and all the more because a part of my own nature showed itself responsive to him. Voices were now approaching through the region of the wood which lay in the vicinity of my tree. Soon I caught glimpses of two figures, a woman and a man, Zenobia and the stranger, earnestly talking together as they advanced. Zenobia had a rich, though varying, color. It was, most of the while, a flame, and anon a sudden paleness. Her eyes glowed, so that their light sometimes flashed upward to me, as when the sun throws a dazzle from some bright object on the ground. Her gestures were free and strikingly impressive. The whole woman was alive with a passionate intensity, which I now perceived to be the phase in which her beauty culminated. Any passion would have become her well, and passionate love perhaps the best of all. This was not love, but anger, largely intermixed with scorn. Yet the idea strangely forced itself upon me that there was a sort of familiarity between these two companions, necessarily the result of an intimate love, on Zenobia's part at least, in days gone by, but which had prolonged itself into as intimate a hatred for all futurity. As they passed among the trees, reckless as her movement was, she took good heed that even the hem of her garment should not brush against the stranger's person. I wondered whether there had always been a chasm, guarded so religiously, betwixt these two. As for Westervelt, he was not a whit more warmed by Zenobia's passion than a salamander by the heat of its native furnace. He would have been absolutely statuesque, save for a look of slight perplexity, tinctured strongly with derision. It was a crisis in which his intellectual perceptions could not altogether help him out. He failed to comprehend, and cared but little for comprehending, why Zenobia should put herself into such a fume, but satisfied his mind that it was all folly, and only another shape of a woman's manifold absurdity, which men can never understand. How many a woman's evil fate has yoked her with a man like this! Nature thrust some of us into the world miserably incomplete on the emotional side, with hardly any sensibilities except what pertain to us as animals, no passion save of the senses, no holy tenderness, nor the delicacy that results from this. Externally they bear a close resemblance to other men, and have perhaps all save the finest grace, but when a woman wrecks herself on such a being, she ultimately finds that the real womanhood within her has no corresponding part in him. Her deepest voice lacks a response. The deeper her cry, the more dead his silence. 
The fault may be none of his. He cannot give her what never lived within his soul. But the wretchedness on her side, and the moral deterioration attendant on a false and shallow life, without strength enough to keep itself sweet, are among the most pitiable wrongs that mortals suffer. Now, as I looked down from my upper region at this man and woman, outwardly so fair a sight, and wandering like two lovers in the wood, I imagined that Zenobia, at an earlier period of youth, might have fallen into the misfortune above indicated. And when her passionate womanhood, as was inevitable, had discovered its mistake, here had ensued the character of eccentricity and defiance which distinguished the more public portion of her life. Seeing how aptly matters had chanced thus far, I began to think it the design of fate to let me into all Zenobia's secrets, and that therefore the couple would sit down beneath my tree and carry on a conversation which would leave me nothing to inquire. No doubt, however, had it so happened, I should have deemed myself honorably bound to warn them of a listener's presence by flinging down a handful of unripe grapes, or by sending an unearthly groan out of my hiding-place, as if this were one of the trees of Dante's ghostly forest. But real life never arranges itself exactly like a romance. In the first place they did not sit down at all. Secondly, even while they passed beneath the tree, Zenobia's utterance was so hasty and broken, and Westervelt so cool and low, that I hardly could make out an intelligible sentence on either side. What I seem to remember, I yet suspect, may have been patched together by my fancy in brooding over the matter afterwards. "'Why not fling the girl off,' said Westervelt, "'and let her go?' She clung to me from the first, replied Zenobia. I neither know nor care what it is in me that so attaches her. But she loves me, and I will not fail her. She will plague you, then, said he, in more ways than one. The poor child, exclaimed Zenobia. She can do me neither good nor harm. How should she? I know not what reply Westervelt whispered, nor did Zenobia's subsequent exclamation give me any clue, except that it evidently inspired her with horror and disgust. "'With what kind of a being am I linked?' cried she. "'If my Creator cares aught for my soul, let him release me from this miserable bond.' "'I did not think it weighed so heavily,' said her companion. "'Nevertheless,' answered Zenobia, "'it will strangle me at last.' and then I heard her utter a helpless sort of moan, a sound which, struggling out of the heart of a person of her pride and strength, affected me more than if she had made the wood dolorously vocal with a thousand shrieks and wails. Other mysterious words besides what are above written they spoke together, but I understood no more, and even question whether I fairly understood so much as this. By long brooding over our recollections, we subtilize them into something akin to imaginary stuff, and hardly capable of being distinguished from it. In a few moments they were completely beyond earshot. A breeze stirred after them, and awoke the leafy tongues of the surrounding trees, which forthwith began to babble, as if innumerable gossips had all at once got wind of Zenobia's secret. But as the breeze grew stronger, its voice among the branches was as if it said, Hush! Hush! 
and I resolved that to no mortal would I disclose what I had heard. And though there might be room for casuistry, such, I conceive, is the most equitable rule in all similar conjunctures. End of chapter 12